railroaded the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. Such a sentence should, at the very least, be reserved for the worst crimes. Ross's crime is nowhere near that category, and his sentence was grossly excessive. That's a quote from Sean Hopwood, professor of law at Georgetown University. Hello and welcome to the Railroaded Podcast. This is part six of an eight-part series and is about the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. My name is Gary Leland, also known as the Crypto Podcaster. You may know me from my other podcasts, such as the Crypto Cousins Podcast and the 4-Minute Crypto Show. Now, Railroaded is a podcast series revealing behind-the-scenes information you've never heard before. This is a peek into the inner workings and conflicts in the Silk Road story, and you'll meet the people involved. I did not produce the Railroaded content that you're about to hear. I'm just distributing it as a podcast to help it reach a larger audience. I hope the more people that know about Ross's situation, the better his chances are being freed. The information in this podcast is based on the public record and should not be attributed to myself, Ross Albrecht, Lynn Albrecht, or anyone else connected with FreeRoss.org. I am not responsible for and do not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in this series. Railroad was created by the FreeRoss team and is narrated by Adrian Basson. On today's episode, you will hear Chapter 17. How Many DPRs, Chapter 18, Selling the Story. So now it's time for the show. Railroaded, the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. Narrated by Adrian Bassan. The following is based on public information sources, including court filings, transcripts, trial exhibits, affidavits, warrant applications, subpoenas, judicial rulings, investigation reports, press releases, sworn testimony, and direct evidence. Some gaps remain due to government protective orders, redactions, sealed records, missing records the court cannot account for, dropped investigations, tampered evidence, communications and other data that remain encrypted, and the fact many of the parties involved have not testified. Even so, Every effort has been made to accurately present the available evidence surrounding the creation, investigation, and shutdown of Silk Road, and the prosecution of Ross Ulbricht. Chapter 17. How Many DPRs? Curtis Green, former Silk Road administrator, said, Everybody says there were multiple DPRs. Absolutely. I was DPR once. So, if I was... Who else was? Will Pangman, Bitcoin and blockchain consultant, said, It is common knowledge that there was more than one DPR. Anyone who even remotely followed the trial could see that the jury was aggressively obstructed from knowing this and many other material facts. In addition to preventing any mention of Carpellis, Force, Bridges, or anyone from Baltimore, Turner worked to maintain the narrative that Ross controlled Silk Road from the day he launched it until his arrest, and that he alone was behind the DPR accounts. This was despite the fact that the government's lead investigator, Der Yegen, believed there were multiple DPRs, and revealed this at trial under oath. You yourself thought that DPR changed over time, didn't you? Dreytel asked him, 
You told people inside your organization, HSI, that DPR had changed in April of 2013. I'm not sure if the April I was referring to was 2012 or 2013. Der Jägen hedged. I think it was April 2012. But the email was written August of 2013, right? August, yes. And when you said it changed in April, you didn't say April a year ago. You just said April, right? Yes. Have you taken any acting courses? Dreytel asked ironically. Beyond Duryagin's beliefs about when DPR changed, there was concrete evidence supporting the fact that different people were behind the DPR accounts at various times. Andrew Jones, one of DPR's employees who was in custody, admitted this to Turner. Turner revealed to Judge Forrest and Dreytel that Jones had in fact communicated with more than one person acting as DPR. In October 2012, Jones and DPR had agreed upon a handshake, a unique question, and response that only they would know. If Jones doubted that he was talking to the same DPR, he could ask the secret question to determine if DPR knew the response. Just weeks before Ross was arrested, Jones asked DPR the question, a book recommendation. The same DPR would have known the correct response, anything by Rothbard. But this DPR was unable to provide it. He told Jones what his first job was on Silk Road instead, moderator of the DPR book club on the Silk Road forum. But this was public knowledge that anyone could know, especially someone who had been around the site for any length of time. As noted earlier, Turner's case hinged on the content of the files they found on Ross's laptop. There were thousands of pages of chat logs on it, including the chat between DPR and Jones from 2012, when they initially set up the handshake. If Ross had actually been DPR, and if it was Ross chatting with Jones just before his arrest... Not only would he have known the handshake, he would have known that he kept chat logs of all his conversations. He could have easily and quickly searched for the book recommendation prompt and offered the correct response. The fact that DPR did not know the handshake demonstrated that there was more than one DPR, that DPR's identity changed over time, and that there was a change very close in time to Ross's arrest all supporting Ross's defense that he had been framed by the genuine DPR. Rather than allow the jury to hear this evidence, Turner removed Jones from his witness list. Dreytel called him to the stand instead, but Jones invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, even though he was cooperating with the government and had told them about the failed handshake in the first place. Knowing how important Jones's testimony was to Ross, Turner used it to lure Dreytel into giving him a significant concession in exchange for letting Dreytel use it at trial without calling Jones to the stand. Then, the night before Dreytel sought to finalize and introduce it, Turner reneged at 11 o'clock p.m. Dreytel asked Judge Forrest to intervene, but she denied the application to introduce Jones's statement. In desperation, Dreytel tried to expose the political connection between Schumer, Judge Forrest, and Barrara. He began by asking IRS agent Alford, who claimed to have found Ross's email address, about the open letter from Schumer asking that Silk Road be shut down. 
Before Alford could answer, Turner objected, and Judge Forrest sustained the objection. Dreytel argued that the question was relevant because the letter put pressure on law enforcement to shut down Silk Road. It makes it something they want to do as quickly as possible, yet two and a half years later Silk Road is still operating. For three months the government can pull the plug at any moment. There is tremendous motivation to find a suspect as quickly as possible and arrest them, regardless of the merits. At this, Judge Forrest became hostile. You've got a view that is frankly rather extraordinary for a person who I know is as intellectual as you. I can't decide if you actually believe that you're right or whether or not you are just taking the position as a zealous advocate. No further mention of Schumer was made. Chapter 18. Selling the Story Roger Veer, CEO of Bitcoin.com, said, The prosecutors in the Silk Road trial have no clue how Bitcoin works, or are intentionally lying about it. At this point in the trial, Howard took over, and methodically presented the jury with segments of files from Ross's laptop, implying that, because they were on his computer, Ross had written or produced every one of them. In addition, he referenced many personal details of Ross's life, such as a journal entry that talked about both his book business and Silk Road, evidence matching Ross's actual travel history with DPR's travel plans, and an email Ross sent to a friend that appeared in one of the chat logs. These snippets were integrated here and there within the laptop material, which Howard tied back to Ross through his seized email and Facebook accounts. Then, Howard presented an exhibit to the jury that mashed together various communications. They made it appear DPR had ordered a hit on someone trying to blackmail Silk Road users, again implying that it was Ross behind the whole thing. This was despite a disclaimer Turner issued to the jury. Now, to be clear, the defendant has not been charged for these attempted murders here, Turner said. You're not required to make any findings about them, and the government does not contend that those murders actually occurred. Dreytel objected that the presentation would prejudice the jury against Ross, but Judge Forrest allowed it anyway. In addition, Turner called FBI agent Ilwan Yum to the stand. Yum had worked with Tarbell to locate and make copies of the Silk Road servers in Iceland. Both had left the FBI together after Ross's arrest and joined FTI Consulting, a private contractor to whom the government paid $55,000 for Yum's testimony. Mid-trial, Yum analyzed the Bitcoin wallet seized from Ross's laptop and produced a voluminous spreadsheet and an extraordinarily complex analysis of millions of Bitcoin addresses and sophisticated computer software. Turner hid this until the last possible moment when, on January 25th at 10.17 p.m., he began handing the material over to Dreytel. Given its volume and complexity, it was impossible to check and analyze Yum's work by the time he took the stand on January 30th. Dreytel asked for a brief adjournment so that a proper cross-examination could be prepared on the material underlying Yum's testimony. Judge Forrest refused and forced Dreytel to proceed on the spot. Despite the extremely short notice, Dreytel was able to establish through his cross-examination of Yum 
that 700,254 bitcoins came into the bitcoin wallet they found on Ross's laptop, yet just over 144,000 remained. There's no analysis of anything going out, he told the jury. There's no evidence of anything going out. Where is the money? Now, that 556,000 bitcoins that are unaccounted for, if you look at it, that would be worth, at the time of Ross's arrest, about $85 million. By November 22, 2013, six weeks later, they were worth $1,000 a bitcoin. Do you know what that comes to? $556 million. Would you spend 144,000 bitcoins, $19 million, to get $556 million? Would that be a sacrifice worth making to put that on someone's wallet if you could get away with the rest of it? Yum also testified that there was a transaction of 195,000 bitcoins after Ross was arrested that was quickly broken up into three smaller amounts. Whose bitcoins are those? Dreytel asked. They are DPRs, not Ross's. As the defense anticipated, Turner never called Tarbell to testify at Ross's trial to be questioned about how he found the Silk Road server in Iceland. Dreytel asked Yum instead, in an attempt to connect him from a Silk Road backup server in Philadelphia to the one in Iceland that Tarbell claimed he found. If he could get Yum to reveal how he found the Philadelphia server's IP address from the Icelandic server, it would open the door to further questioning about how the Icelandic server was actually found. However, Yum shielded himself. I was brought onto the case around that time and received an IP address, he said, and my... The investigative team, before I joined, they were the ones who did the analysis, so I can't speak to what allowed me to receive that IP address, but I received that IP address, nothing else. Dreytel could not probe deeper, because Turner could object that Yum didn't have direct knowledge, and whatever he said would be speculation or hearsay. Turner had used the same tactic when calling Alford to the stand and on other occasions throughout trial, eliciting an outburst from Duretel. Then I would move to strike all of Agent Alford's testimony, with the exception of what he actually did on the internet, because everything else is hearsay, everything else is beyond his knowledge. Everything else is fed to him so he can testify to that and then not be cross-examined. That's what's happening here. To challenge Yum's testimony, Dreytel tried to bring in expert witness Andreas Antonopoulos, a best-selling author, speaker, educator, and one of the world's foremost Bitcoin experts. Antonopoulos's testimony would have explained to the jury a number of technically complex and abstract concepts involving Bitcoin, and countered certain aspects of Yum's testimony, particularly the massive spreadsheet accompanying it. It would have highlighted defects in Yum's forensic analysis of Bitcoin addresses and defined principles of ownership, control, and access related to Bitcoin and Bitcoin wallets, in counterpoint to the flawed conclusions in Yum's testimony, as well as Yum's inaccurate definition of important terminology and description of Bitcoin mechanics. Dreytel also attempted to bring in expert witness Stephen Bellavin, computer science professor at Columbia University and leading expert on computer networking and internet security. Bellavin's testimony would have addressed a number of technical computer and internet-related issues which the defense was prevented from addressing during cross-examination, 
Those matters included general principles of internet security and vulnerabilities, PHP computer programming, forensic memory analysis, general issues related to Linux-based operating systems, and principles of public key cryptography. Each of these issues was significantly implicated in the testimony of government witnesses, as well as in the evidence related to the government's forensic examination and analysis of Ross's laptop. Aside from Bates's testimony, the government's entire case against Ross relied on the digital evidence on his laptop, and the tenuous connections they made online between his name and information associated with Silk Road. In fact, Bates's testimony contradicted the government's narrative because he confirmed that Ross had passed Silk Road on to someone else in 2011. The government's attempts to refute this relied on just a few lines from one of the chat logs on the laptop. Bellavin's testimony would have shown that this digital evidence was unreliable, that it could have been doctored and planted without a trace. He would have explained to the jury how vulnerabilities inherent to the Internet and digital data, such as fabrication and manipulation of files and metadata and hacking, rendered the evidence against Ross inauthentic, unattributable to him, and ultimately unreliable. Instead of presenting the facts and proving his case, Turner once again succeeded in having the judge gag Dreytel by preventing him from calling either Bellavin or Antonopoulos to the stand. She ruled that it would be unfair to make the government prepare to cross-examine expert witnesses on short notice. In fact, Judge Forrest's decision was entirely asymmetrical. She had told Dreytel in front of the jury, you need to call a witness to make the points you want to make, once again putting the burden of proof on the defense. I am moving for a mistrial, Dreytel said in outrage once the jury had left. It's not my burden. I have no such burden. You put the burden on me. The motion for mistrial is denied, the judge replied. Yet, when it came time for Dreytel to call his witnesses, she prevented them from testifying. Unlike Dreytel, Turner was permitted to elicit testimony for which cross-examination was precluded, and include complex, lengthy summary exhibits created mid-trial, while Dreytel was not permitted to confront them at all. In contrast to the inflexible standard imposed on Ross, Turner was permitted to elicit Yum's testimony, and when Dreytel sought to call Antonopoulos for the purpose of countering it, his testimony was precluded completely. Thus, it was the defense that was subject to trial by ambush. Finally, having his expert Bitcoin and technical witnesses prevented from testifying, Dreytel called to the stand four character witnesses, people who had known Ross personally, some since childhood, who attested to Ross's good and peaceful nature. However, for the jury, who had heard Turner demonize Ross throughout trial, this was not enough. In closing arguments, Turner and Howard summarized their narrative, and dismissed the few arguments Dreytel was permitted to make. The jury had no way to know that Dreytel was hamstrung by the court's rulings, or that they had been spoon-fed Turner's story throughout trial. Howard dismissed what little the jury heard about Carpellis, saying his only connection to Silk Road was that he ran the hosting company for SilkRoadMarket.org. However, he then dismissed even that connection, because the registration information for that website was among the Silk Road files on Ross's laptop, 
Howard accused Ross of registering it, implying to the jury that Carpellis was an innocent bystander. Every piece of evidence supporting the idea that Ross never handed Silk Road off, that he operated it the whole time and was the only DPR, was digital data seized from his laptop at his arrest. Turner and Howard went through it again in detail, focusing on a few text files and spreadsheets where details from Ross's life were mixed in with records of Silk Road operations. The text files consisted of one document called log.txt that appeared to be a log of DPR's Silk Road operation for much of 2013, and the chat logs mentioned earlier, that recorded DPR's private chats with other Silk Road administrators. There were also three text files that seemed to have been written in 2010, 2011, and January 2012. Despite the prosecution making much of these, and referring to them as Ross's journal, this unattributed material totaled less than six pages, or 46 kilobytes. All of it was digital, which, as Bellavin would have explained, could easily have been tampered with and planted. Deprived of the backstory detailing how McFarland, Force, and Bridges sabotaged Duryagin's investigation of Carpellis, how they secretly infiltrated Silk Road through Green's account, and how Carpellis worked with AUSAK to target someone shortly before Ross's arrest, there was no reason for the jury to think that Ross could have been set up. There was no reason for them to consider that his personal information might have been incorporated into those files and planted on his laptop. Without Bellavin's expert testimony, the digital evidence appeared strong. The jury had no idea how easy it would have been to manipulate and place those files, or that the prosecutor's narrative wasn't the only possible one. They did not consider that Ross could have come to trust DPR and share details of his life with him, and that someone acting as DPR could have used that information. Nor did they consider that someone in the government could have used their access to Ross's email and Facebook accounts to gather and plant those details. Turner told the jury there were no little elves that put all of that evidence on Ross's computer. Yet... As he knew all along, there were indeed two little elves. Law enforcement agents investigating the Silk Road website, operating secretly, illegally, corruptly, and brazenly, even inside the Silk Road website itself. Howard said that Ross's defense was not supported by actual evidence, even though he knew there was a mountain of evidence involving Carpellis, Force, Bridges, Kay, McFarland, and Jones, plus Bellavin's and Antonopoulos's blocked testimony. He dramatically pointed at Ross in front of the jury and accused him of trying to have people killed. It took slightly over three hours for the jury to deliberate, while Ross sat in a cell awaiting his fate. He was found guilty on all counts, including the kingpin charge, with its mandatory 20-year sentence. For a written version of this episode, plus citations and footnotes, go to freeross.org slash railroaded. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to help Ross, please consider signing and sharing Ross's clemency petition at freeross.org slash petition. 
Over 190,000 people have signed it so far. We should hit 200,000 very soon. For additional information, visit freeross.org. You can also follow Ross on Twitter at RealRossU, and that's just the letter U. Everyone, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode, and I'd love it if you could give this podcast a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. That really, really does help more than you know. And please share this podcast with your friends on social media, and let's get the word out there. Now, this episode was sponsored by BitBlockBoom Bitcoin Conference. Take a look at the great conference coming to Dallas, Texas at bitblockboom.com. I hope I get to meet you in Dallas. Until the next episode, this is Gary Leland from CryptoPodcaster.com saying thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you.